Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Why don't you just open up your Bibles to Colossians 3. It's on page 984 of the Pew Bible. Uh, That was my son, Jack, uh, singing a very good song, uh, You Are So Beautiful to Me. You're everything that I hoped for. You're everything that I need. And why do I start there? It's because we're in a series called Playlist Propaganda, where we're looking at some popular songs in culture and how the lyrics of those songs um, stand up against uh, God's Word. And we know that there is actually a really good place for romantic sentiment, right? Like hyperbole. We use it all the time. We use... um, creative, poetic ways to say things that uh, when we're exaggerating the truth to make a point. We do it all the time and it even happens in the Bible. It happens in Song of Songs. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 7, the writer of Song of Songs um, says to his beloved, um, you are altogether beautiful, there is no flaw in you. Now is it a reality that this woman had no flaw? Likely not. But it's that kind of language we use all the time. We use it of our partners all the time. Truth be told, my wife uses it of me, right? And gun to her head, would she desire a husband that had hair? My wife, gun to her head, is more kind than that. She probably wouldn't admit it. But I know within her heart of hearts that she looks at me and perhaps she would change a couple of things about me, but she has this deep love for me that she expresses through these absolute terms. So there is actually these places where we can use romantic sentiment, we can use these songs in a really good way. But the truth is that in the wrong context, these songs actually become the doctrine of our lives in a world that is broken, fractured, and desperately searching for healing. These songs aren't just fun and they don't, they don't just have their right place in our lives, they actually become the, um, the word that informs our life and now relationships become the place that we go to to find uh, healing for our brokenness, to find comfort where we can find comfort in nothing else. These lyrics are actually really common. These are some of the lyrics that we've had in our culture. Um, Does anyone remember Savage Garden? Any Savage people remember Savage Garden? Cool, the over 30s? Yep, love it. Under 30, I like that. Um, I knew I loved you. You remember that song? I knew I loved you before I met you. It was that idea that this guy had created this perfect idea of a woman and just conjured her into being. And one of the lyrics is, A thousand angels dance around you. I am complete now that i found you. Like imagine the pressure in that relationship to have this complete picture in just one relationship. Um, Percy Sledge, When a Man Loves a Woman. Anyone know that song? Anyone under 20 know that song? Okay, let me inform you. When a man loves a woman, these are the lines. Uh, and the pressure it places on a man to meet the need of a woman. When a man loves a woman, spend his very last dime trying to hold on to what he needs, he'd give up all his comfort, sleep out in the rain, if she said that that's the way it ought to be. There is going to be a problem in your romantic relationships if you see it as employer and boss, right? That someone's a boss and someone is an employee. Or see if you can, um, see if you can think of what song this is as I read out the lyrics. Who thinks so much like me? Jinx, jinx again. Our mental synchronization can have but one explanation. 
you and I were just meant to be. Say goodbye, say goodbye to the pain of the past. We don't have to feel it anymore. Love is an open door. Song from, from Frozen, right? The pressure, the pressure on relationships to heal the wounds of the past. So Jerry Maguire, remember that movie, You Complete Me? In the right context, these romantic sentiments are beautiful and in their wrong context, they become debilitating and bitter and the relationships that we're in where there should be so much beauty carry a weight that they were never meant to carry. Songs of old do it and also songs that are new, much like this song. Going under and this time I fear there's no one to save me This all or nothing really got a way of driving me crazy I need somebody to heal, somebody to know Somebody to have, somebody to hold It's easy to say, but it's never the same I guess I kind of like the way you numbed all the pain And now the day bleeds into nightfall And you're not here to get me through it all I let my guard down, then you pull the rug I was getting kind of used to being someone you love Gee, Does anyone want to marry Jason right now? Please, I'll, I'll take you. Uh, Someone You Loved by Louis Capaldi. Uh, Stream more than a billion times. These, these are some of the lyrics. I was going under, and this time I fear there's no one to save me. I thought I need somebody to know, somebody to heal. I guess I kind of liked uh, how you healed all the pain. And you're not here to get me through it all. Uh, in a way, this song is totally fine. If you were to have this song at your wedding, there's no one sitting there judging you for it. But the problem is, in a world desperately needing a healer, they turn to lyrics like this to find healing. And the result is that one in uh, three marriages ends up in divorce. And I do believe it's because of the pressure that we put upon relationships to be our healer. Uh, so is there hope for relationships? I believe that there is. How can, you how can your relationship be thriving and flourishing and faithful and be a life-changing relationship? Well, I do believe that Colossians has the answer for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Colossians 3, uh, living the new life, putting on the new self, and we're going to apply it to the context of relationships. Because I do believe that by God's design, your relationship can flourish and your relationship can be beautiful. Um, Paul writes this letter, unsurprisingly, from a prison. Right? Most of his letters are written from prison. And they're often written to churches that he established. Um, he's left this church and there has since been false teachers that have come in and they're trying to get his church that believed the gospel to now believe a different gospel, a gospel in line with the world. So they turn to these false teachers seeking hope in the things that were never meant to give hope. So Paul writes this letter teaching them to live in this new self created through the gospel. 
And what we're going to see is that we, as we apply this new self to the context of relationships, that relationships can actually be uh, incredibly beautiful. So let's look at chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 1. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, the very first thing that Paul says that the Christian needs is a renewed vision. And it is a renewed vision of humility. A renewed vision of humility. What does this phrase mean? Seek the things that are above. Well, what are our options? The first option is, is that we could seek God like someone would on a spiritual pilgrimage. We know the myths of old that um, people used to climb um, Mount Olympus to be able to reach Zeus or people um, would travel through Europe or travel somewhere to go on a spiritual pilgrimage to try and find God. Is that what it's talking about? Well, the book of Acts tells us that God does not live in temples and buildings made by man, so it can't mean that. Option number two, seek a heavenly position for yourself like Christ has. Well, that makes no sense at all because the Bible tells us that we have already have a heavenly position that has been purchased by Jesus Christ, so much so that the Bible describes us as a royal priesthood. So it cannot mean that. What it would mean is option three, which means that we need to live this earthly life in accordance with this heavenly reality. That we have been adopted as children of the Father, fully loved and fully accepted, and we have this uh, position with God as co-heirs with Christ, and we need to seek to live out that heavenly, heavenly reality here on earth. So verse 1 and verse 17 serve as a kind of introduction and conclusion that argue the same thesis. So look back down at verse 17. It says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This vision for our lives as children of the Father, co-heirs with Christ, servants of King Jesus, means to live in light of Jesus' lordship and not my own. Right? To surrender to Jesus' lordship and not my own lordship. Because I would put it to you that we actually have no problem coming under the lordship of other people. Our problem is believing that Jesus' lordship is better. So we put ourselves underneath other people's lordship all the time and we get pretty excited about it. We, um, get a, we sign up for university, right? And we're excited about going to university. And how many people have quit university because they didn't like their lecturer? Or how many people got excited about going to school and you, you contacted up your book like the night before you were so excited about school and then you met your teacher? And then you want to quit school because you don't like your teacher? Or you bought all these new fancy clothes to go to work because you're so excited and then you met your boss and now you don't want to work there anymore? We actually get excited about coming under the lordship of other people. And what so often happens is that not too long into that relationship, we want to come underneath our own lordship. But the Bible is teaching us that not only is it right to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it is actually better for you. That God longs for you to experience his lordship, not as a have-to, as a way to control you, but as a way to set you free and, in and enjoy the blessings that he has set aside for you. For many Christians, you were happy to come, come under the lordship of Jesus Christ until you were single for longer than you thought that you would be. 
And so you turn to relationships of the world, people that weren't running with the Lord because you were sick of God's timing. Or you were sick of God's timing and so you thought that you could get a relationship quicker by using your sexuality rather than enjoying the gift of God's timing. Or maybe in your marriage, you thought you were so excited to come under the lordship of Christ in your marriage and then your partner was fighting with you in a way that you didn't like or they weren't pleasing you in the bedroom, bedroom so you started looking over your neighbor's fence. You liked the lordship of Jesus Christ until it made you feel uncomfortable. But Paul wants to say to you that not only is coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ the right thing to do, it is also better, friends. Listen to what he says in Philippians 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What was Paul's experience? Paul's experience was that prior to knowing Christ, being his own Lord, he was um, well-liked in his community, he had power, people feared him. And then what changed for Paul? What changed for Paul was that he came to know Christ Jesus as his Lord and counted everything else as nothing. Nothing the world had to offer him was able to compare to knowing Christ Jesus and knowing him as Lord. He experienced the benefits of a relationship with Christ Jesus and he could trust him as Lord. So we need to ask, how do I experience the benefits of Christ Jesus? Well, the first thing that you need to do is you need to believe upon the goodness of King Jesus. And the way that you do that is... Um, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That you believe upon the Lord Jesus, that Jesus Christ's finished work is enough. That you do not come to relationship with God through um, church attendance, through someone you know. The news is actually better. You come to relationship with Jesus through his grace and kindness upon you. Believing upon it is the only thing that you need to do. Right? That was the first benefit he received. But secondly, you need to embrace a renewed vision of humility where you trust that Jesus as Lord is better. John 4 is the best example of this, the woman at the well, right? For the Christians in the room, you might know this story well. There is a woman at a well on her own in the middle of the day. We know that that's not great news for that woman. That women in Jesus' culture, they travelled in groups for security. They um, travelled in groups for community. This woman's alone. She's there in the middle of the day, right? The hottest time of the day. Hopefully where no one would see her and no one would meet her. We know that she's lived her life in a certain way where she's been ostracised from culture, ostracised from society. She's put herself in tension with the world. And then she meets Jesus. And she shares that she's actually had five husbands and that the uh, man she's with now is not her own. And can you imagine the kind of life that she's led? The way that she's maybe used her body to seduce men and that women now don't want to have anything to do with her, the relationships that she's broken down, the families that she's broken down, the, that society has rejected her for a reason, not for no reason. 
She's tasted the bitterness of the world and her life is headed on a trajectory until she meets Jesus and his lordship. And he says this to her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The, the, the water of the world. But whoever drinks of the water that I, Jesus, will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She's confronted, like we all are, with the choice, where do we want to get our water from? There's water everywhere. There's water in the world, it is bitter and it does not last, and there's water that comes from King Jesus and it, it is eternal. It brings peace, it brings joy, and it brings true healing. God designed romantic relationships. God wants romantic relationships to flourish, but in the right way, right? There is a context for your relationship to flourish in the right way. In the Garden of Eden, friends, um, Adam was on his own. And when Adam was on his own, uh, God looked at Adam and said, it was not good that you are alone. And God did not say that he was sinning. God did not berate him. God did not tell him off. It's not wrong of you to desire a relationship, right? It's not wrong of you to love your partner. It's not wrong of you to desire marriage. Those things are not wrong. Adam, what, what, what went wrong is Adam was gifted Eve, right? And what goes wrong for so many people in this world is that rather than seeing uh, Eve as a helper, a gift from God, we treat our relationships like they are God. That a man or a woman comes into our life and they are to be worshipped. Where Eve was given to Adam to be a helper, to be an encouragement. But so many people treat a relationship like it's going to heal you like only God can. Like it's going to bring you joy like only God can. And what happens is that it puts so much pressure on a relationship that it crumbles. The primary issue for the woman at the well was that as the Lord of her own life, she was drinking the water of the world, expecting it to satisfy like the waters that come from the true Lord. I wonder if that's your story here tonight. Have you drunk the water of the world and, and found it to be unfulfilling and bitter? Perhaps tonight you would be willing to admit that you've crossed lines that made you feel hollow inside, pursued relationships to find healing that only comes from your true healer. The truth of Christianity is that Jesus actually invites you to come under his lordship so that under his lordship you can be you can experience true healing so that you don't need to use a relationship to experience that healing. Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest. Come to me and you will find peace. You will find eternal life. You will find a true sense of your identity and you will find joy forevermore. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing to come under the Lordship of Christ and have your relationship or your relationship to be experience true, true freedom or are we going to put a pressure on our relationship that was never supposed to be? If you are ready to say, um, I want Jesus to be Lord of my relationship, then maybe the tonight is the night for you. And if you're willing to do that, to say, 
Jesus is my Lord and the Lord of my relationship, then Paul would also say to you that the next step for you is to pursue a renewed mind. Look down at your Bibles in Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in verse 1, Paul is inviting you through a command to make Jesus Lord of your life. And in the second verse, he is saying, think that what you think about matters. But not in the kind of way where, you know when random things just pop into your mind? Have you ever been the person in class at uni or at school and you just started laughing? Not because of what anyone else said, but you were just thinking about random stuff. That happens to me when I'm just thinking about random stuff. And so I was like looking online to find out if it was just me. And there were other people that just think about random things like this. Do you know, when you say forward or back, your lips actually move in those directions? Try it. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. The object of golf is to play the least amount of golf. Amazing, right? You can hold your breath for the rest of your life. Think about it. Amazing, right? This is my favorite. Why do people say I slept like a baby when babies wake up 10 times every two hours? Amazing, right? What Paul's not saying is that you're going to have, um, at times, godly things pop into your mind, and when the godly thing pops into your mind, think about it. That's not what Paul was saying. He's not saying take a passive approach to the things that you think about. He's saying set your minds. Be aggressive. Pursue godly things to bring into your mind and think about those things. Because what you think about matters. What you dwell upon matters. What you bring into your mind matters because it will manifest into your life. Nothing happens significantly in our life without thinking about it first. No one gets married by accident in Australia, right? No one gets married without thinking about it in Australia. In America, it's different, right? In, a, in America, there are many states where you can just roll up and you can get married on the spot without thinking about it. So um, that's, we, we think about people like Nicolas Cage, got drunk in Las Vegas, got married and got divorced four days later. Think about Britney Spears in 2004. She got married for 56 hours, then got divorced because she got married without thinking about it. But in Australia, you can't do that, right? In Australia, at least 31 days out, you have to sign a notice of intent to marry, and, say, and you have to pick a date, and you have to pick a time, and that stuff can't change. In Australia, you have to think before you get married. And it is also true that... Um, As much as we think about getting married, it's also true that no one cheats on their marriage without thinking about it first. That cheating on your partner actually takes place long before the physical moment ever happens. It's conceived in your mind, a lingering thought becomes a dream, which becomes an idea, an idea that looks for an opportunity. And when a thought looks for an opportunity, it finds a moment, and we all know how disastrous moments can be. James says it like this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, 
nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after a desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. What we choose to bring into our mind matters. Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The next verse, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. What he's saying is that what you think about will turn into practice. What you think about matters. To Paul, recalling these teachings to mind is the start of stepping towards godliness. Just like he says here, recalling evil to our mind will lead us toward misery. Look down in your Bibles in verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, uh, passion is a kind of sexual passion in this, in this text. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On, the, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. These sins uh, make you an enemy of God, and the enemy of God has no place in God's kingdom, nor will he experience the fruit of living under Christ's lordship. Now, there are two things to say about that. Um, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Um, this command is actually an incredible invitation. Put to death is an invitation from the Lord that it might be your story that your past is actually marked by those sins. That you look at that list of sins and it marks incredibly well like an autobiography. Well, the word of the Lord to you is that you're invited to put things, things to death because... It is the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. There is no shame in repentance. It is a free gift of the Lord that if your story is marked by tragedy, your future can be marked by grace. Incredibly profound. But the second thing that we need to say about that text is that if you do not choose to put these things to death, the pain that you have experienced in this lifetime will only be marked by more pain in the next lifetime as you experience eternal separation from God. It's a powerful text. It's why he says in 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I believe one of the greatest sins crippling our lives is sexual sin. And this verse says, but the sexual immoral, immoral person sins against his own body. Every other sin a person commits outside his body. And on face value, this verse doesn't make much sense because there are other sins that we can commit against our body, aren't there? Like, um, like gluttony or self-mutilation. There are other things that we can do. This verse makes a bit more sense when you understand the Greek. And when the Greek uses the word, the Greek word for body is the word soma. And that um, word is often used... Um, in the context of a body becoming intimate with another body. And our bodies are actually a gift from the Lord to experience, in the context of a marriage, 
deep, profound intimacy with a marriage partner. That you can't actually separate sex from intimacy. It's impossible. That's why Paul writes in his letters to say, um, if you're married, don't deprive your marriage partner of sex, except for a season. Because when you join together in sexual union, you actually experience deep intimacy with someone else, with your marriage partner. So the story is, is that when we engage in sexual activity, we are experiencing some kind of intimacy. We are either experiencing beautiful intimacy or we're experiencing hollow intimacy. That leaves us scarred and it leaves us in pain. The pain of addiction to sexual sin is going to get worse because of the pain you experience in this life and the separation from God that you will experience in the next. It's heavy stuff, right? But the good news is that there is a better way to live and Paul isn't quiet about it. He says, come under the Lordship of Christ. He says, um, think, renew your mind. But he also says that we need a renewed wardrobe. A renewed wardrobe, friends. Uh, look down in your Bibles in verse 12. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has to complain against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in harmony. Um, the Bible says in the NIV version, it's up, uh, in the ESV, put, up, put on then love. Uh, and in the NIV, it says, clothe yourself, right? Clothe yourself with these characteristics. Why should we do this? He gives three reasons. Because you are God's chosen ones, because you are holy, and because you are loved. How good is it to know that God's commands for you are because he loves you? That he's not commanding you to restrict you away from blessing, but he actually gives you commands so that you'll be freed into blessing. Now, don't be silly with the word blessing. It doesn't mean un unmerited pros financial prosperity. But blessing, the equivalent word for blessing, does mean happiness. That God is setting aside a roadmap for you to experience happiness in your relationships. That as you dressed yourself rightly, you can experience true happiness. Um, I always joke with um, Pastor Timon about the clothes that he wears because um, he wears jeans and sneakers a lot. Anyone familiar with his sneans? Anyone seen him wear sneans before? I joke with him about it, right? And every time I joke with him about his sneans, he always makes jokes about Jerry Seinfeld, how Jerry Seinfeld used to do it. You know Seinfeld, that show that finished in 1998? You know that one? That became cool. It stopped becoming cool to wear jeans and sneakers in 1997. And um, he, he wears, he wears uh, those kinds of clothes all the time. And he jokes about it. But one of the things that I love about um, Timon is that he cares very little about worldly clothes and very um, deeply about the kind of eternal clothes that we wear. And the real shame is that so much of culture has got it flipped where our priorities is that we care deeply about the way that we present ourselves physically and we care very little about the way that we're presenting ourselves through our characteristics and through our behaviour, things that make a difference in light of eternity. This is what 1 Samuel 16 says. 
16.7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love that Timon cares about a different set of clothing, right? Clothing that makes a difference into eternity. Doesn't care about appearances, cares about what's going on within. I remember when I was in my late 20s, I was pursuing a girl uh, for all the, wrong, all the wrong reasons. And she was the receptionist at my gym and she was attractive. And so um, I decided that I wanted to pursue her. And then so I tried to make myself attractive and found out the things that she liked and then tried to be all those things for her. And what happened was that it worked. And we ended up in a relationship, but it wasn't very soon after that. Um, very soon after that, I started asking myself who I really was. Who I had made myself out to be. That I couldn't keep keeping up appearances, right? That we keep trying to put these masks on top of us, trying to present this personality. We tend to these masks and we forget who we truly are. I read an article this week that asked this question, how important is physical attraction when choosing a dating or marriage partner? Big question, right? Great article by Godly Men. How important is physical attraction? Their answer, a lot less than you think. Incredible answer. For most people to look in our, looking to date in our culture, I think that we would all say, for most people looking to date in our culture, that um, looks is actually pretty high on the list whether it's um, uh, like a beautiful face or abs or for girls, they might be thinking, I want a tall guy. Like it's about physical appearance. A lot of people think about that. But you ask any married person who's been married for longer than their rookie year, right? would they prefer to have an unbelievably gorgeous partner who is argumentative and is badgering or would they prefer have someone who is okay looking and who is godly? And every single person would say that I would choose godliness. Every single time. Now, I'm not saying that physical attraction isn't important, right? I think that when you care about the way that you present yourself, you honor the Lord by honoring your body, and you actually honor the attraction between you two um, in your marriage as lovers. I believe it's incredibly important. But what do we know about looks? We know that they fade. What do we know about character traits? They grow. Read this verse in Proverbs this week that almost made me laugh out loud. Proverbs 21.9. Anyone know this one? Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Now, this is writ written by a man about a woman, but you can swap genders. That's easy, right? Living in a household, no matter how beautiful the other person is, insert husband, insert wife, insert girlfriend, insert boyfriend, right? Looks fade, but character grows. What you put on yourself matters. But you know, men, we actually need to own that the reason why so many women in the church feel the pressure to tend to their physical beauty so much more than their spiritual beauty is because we've led them to believe that that's what we care about most. It happens in the way that you date them and what you're most interested in on these dates. It happens in what you compliment them about the most. 
And women, you need to own that the reason why men fear approaching women to ask them out on dates is because many women have invented a Mr. Right that is impossible for even the best bloke to compete with, to compete with unless you're Luke Brakey. I wasn't going to make that joke and then I just really wanted to make it because I really like Luke Brakey. Now, this might not be your story. But the question we all need to ask, I'm sorry about that one, Luke. I just had that in my heart. I love Deep love for you. I regret it. Delete it from the video. Never happened. Timon's not here. Never happened. Look down at verse um, 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you, indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And be thankful. Why does he say, and be thankful? Friends, it's because it's going to bless you. It's going to bless you in your relationships if you care about what God cares about. If you spit out the dirty, bitter water of the world and receive the water that comes from Christ. The choice that we have is this, to pursue pleasure in that which fades away or to be a person that pursues and cultivates a kind of godly character that pleases the Lord and attracts the kind of partner worth keeping. So what is Paul teaching us? Bring yourself under the Lordship of Christ. Put to death. Silly thinking. Put to death earthly thinking. And he's saying, clothe yourself with things that matter. He says one more thing. We need a renewed dwelling. Look down at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. The church does not just exist for you. It exists for you and for the people around you. It exists for you to experience intimacy and it exists for the people around you to experience intimacy. And I think that the church does well to recognize that many people have pursued relationships with the wrong people outside of the church because the kind of intimacy and care and love and community that they were hoping to receive in the church did not happen. But what does that passage say? It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. The only thing that happens inside you is the thankfulness to God. Everything else is for the benefit of other people. right? The teaching, the admonishing, the singing is actually for the benefit of everyone else around us. wonder what this church would be like, right? What all churches would be like. A church community, if we... Stop treating the church like our favorite shop, uh, favorite shop at the mall, right? Where we go into our favorite shop, we go in to get what we need. And it's a better experience if no one talks to us, right? We enjoy our shopping experience if someone doesn't come up and talk to us. We come in and we get what we need. No one speaks to us. And then we leave and we only come back when we need something else. Wouldn't it be so much better if we treated the church like the church? That Jesus said to his disciples 
that they, being the world, will know you by the way that you love one another. As I have loved you. So imagine if we were the kind of church community where we created a loving, intimate community where we were sacrificing for one another, investing with one another, communicating with one another, laying our lives down for one another. So there wouldn't be people in our church that look at the timing of God and say, well, I can't find a relationship inside the church. I'm going to head elsewhere where people in our church would be saying, I don't want to experience community anywhere else because there is no other community than what is happening right before my eyes. People are loving me like Jesus loved me. Don't, want to be, don't we want to be that kind of community? People don't need to leave the four walls of the church to experience intimacy, but friends, they experience it right here. I'm going to invite the band to come back up on stage, please. Uh, I know I've been going for a while, but I hope it's helpful. Um, oxygen masks are um, attached to machines that do the breathing for you. If you lay down on a hospital bed, there is a problem with your breathing. They put an oxygen mask on you. But if you fight against the machine and you rip that mask off of you, the oxygen mask can't do anything. There's only one thing that you can do with an oxygen mask to receive the life that comes from it, and that's to submit to it. The truth is, is that Jesus is much like an oxygen mask. Jesus can't benefit you if the way that you consider him is that he's just near you that you can just call on him when you need. The truth is that many relationships actually look like people running out of air, people hyperventilating. And the call of Christ is that we would put on the oxygen mask, right? Not just holding it in our hands by association, walking around saying, I've got an oxygen mask. I'm attached to that church. I attend every week. I'm in a small group. But Paul's call to all of us is that we would put on the new self by submitting to Christ and enjoying his lordship. You can experience relationships not to find healing, but because you've already been healed. You've already had an encounter with Jesus and he's radically transformed your life and radically transformed your eternity. The question you need to ask yourself tonight is, are you done with bitter water that doesn't bring life? That as you wait for a relationship or you're in a relationship, dating, maybe you're married, that you would bring yourself under the Lordship of Christ, not just because it is right to do so, but because you trust his word that it is better. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for our church that we would be the kind of church community that you would look upon us and say, well done, good and faithful servants. We love people on the margins that are difficult to love because we were difficult to love. That you loved us, Lord, we know, when we could offer you nothing in return. You've called us your children. You've laid out a path for us to live. 
And it is true, Lord, that so many times we choose to be our own lords. I would just ask that by your spirit, would you meet us now? Would you teach us to lean upon you, to submit to you, to know that we know that we know that you are the Lord of our life and it is better. God, I want to pray for the single people in this room who long for a relationship. I pray for two things. I pray that they would long in the right way, not longing for um, a relationship to heal the brokenness that that only you can heal. But I also pray, God, that you would bring people into their life, bring godly men and godly women. I also just pray for um, people in our church that are not yet married. I pray that um, they would test their relationship by your word that their relationship, that their partnership would be one where they don't seek to replace you, but they seek to stand in unity as they worship you. Help them not compromise because they have not opened the gift of marriage yet. God, I just pray for the married people in this church. Would they be an example to us all? Would you um, bind them together by your spirit so that they would honor you and be holy marriages? So God, we ask as a church, Lord, would we put on the new self, leaning upon you because you are better. I pray these things in your name. Amen.